Welcome to Guns, Knives, and Lipstick, the podcast where four female crime fiction authors explore the delights, disasters, and demands of the publishing journey and chat with those who share that journey with us. We're your hosts, Carrie Peresta, C.L. Tolbert, Mally Becker, and Liz Miller. Join us as we chat with some of our favorite authors and go behind the scenes of their writing lives. So let's get to it, shall we? Well, welcome everyone to episode two of the second season of Guns, Knives, and Lipstick. And I'm absolutely thrilled today to have Bruce Coffin with us as our guest. Um, Bruce, I've, I've known Bruce for a while. He's blurred a couple of my books. He's a great guy. Um, he's going to read his bio. Bruce Robert Coffin is the award-winning author of the Detective Byron Mystery Series. A former detective sergeant with more than 27 years in law enforcement, he supervised all homicide and violent crime investigations for Maine's largest city. Following the terror attacks of September 11, 2001, Bruce spent four years investigating counterterrorism cases for the FBI, earning the director's award, the highest award a non-agent can receive. Winner of Killer Nashville's Silver Felchin Awards for Best Procedural and Best Investigator, and the main literary award for the best crime fiction novel, Bruce was also a finalist for the Agatha Award for best contemporary novel. His short fiction appears in a number of anthologies, including Best American Mystery Series 2016. Bruce is a member of the International Thriller Writers, Mystery Writers of America, Sisters in Crime, the Short Fiction Mystery Society, and the Maine Writers and Publishers Alliance. He is a regular contributor to the Murder Books blog. Hi, Bruce, welcome. Hi, Liz. Hi to all of you. Thank you for having um, me on. Yes, we are We are thrilled because you are an awesome guy. For those, I mean, most of us know you at least in person. I've met you a couple of times. You're always Thank one you. of my favorites. You're Thank always you. one of my favorites to see up there. We are looking forward to raking you over the coals. Oh, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> I probably need it. No, 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 no. It's all going to be good. It's all good. We're friendly here. We're friendly. <laughs> so here's this one's going to be really really easy so within plain sight is the fourth detective byron and your most recent novel um how would you describe this book and its themes give us your elevator pitch um really for anyone who's who's followed the series uh book four was sort of the natural progression to the next stage in john byron's uh, life uh the next stage in his relationship with diane joiner uh, and I wanted to, when I, when I set out to write the series, initially, I, I wanted to, a lot of times you find a, a hero and then you watch them devolve into something and, you know, sort of Ozark style where things just keep getting worse. And I wanted to, to pen a series where not only could you root for the, for the main characters, but I wanted you to, uh, to, to kind of go along with this, whatever they were struggling with to go along with them as they went on their character arc and, and hopefully, uh, improve their standing in life. Um, John, when I created him, I really wanted somebody who, who portrayed uh, what it was like to be a veteran detective accurately. Uh, and so when you meet him in the first book, his marriage is, is he's separated from his wife of 20 years in the first book. Um, he's not a, uh, he's not a full-blown alcoholic. He's highly functioning, but he's in denial, um, which is where unfortunately many of my coworkers found themselves. And you really had two choices there. And so I wanted to tell a positive story 
about a, a guy who could really um, put the things in perspective in his life that needed to be put in perspective. Um, and really, he sort of, there's an awakening with John that actually happens in the first book when he discovers something about his past that is largely the reason he is who he is. And it turns out that um, he's been told a lie and his life has been formed around that lie. So uh, it's sort of a, uh, a coming of, it's a coming of, um, I don't know, I'm, I'm not sure what the term is I would use, but John really sort of awakens on that first book. And so um, I already had planned out a progression for him. I knew that by the third book, I was going to have to do something mighty to shove John off the ledge and write a believable story that would compel him to actually ask for help, which is the toughest thing to do, uh, really for anybody, but I think even more so for police uh, first responder types. Um, you know, you spend your day driving to something or running to something that everyone else needs help from or for. And um, so you're the person, we're the people that go to, you know, to help others in need. We don't ask for it. And we're really, we're bad at that. We're very bad at that. And that's one of the reasons there's so, you know, so many uh, dysfunctional things happening outside of the job. So by the fourth book, I, I could see, I envisioned John beginning his life, taking on another case and finally um, having to try to figure out and come to grips with what that meant, what life after sobriety meant. Uh, and could he still be an effective investigator or would the stresses of the case uh, you know, rear themselves again and, and put him back in a bad uh, situation. So that's really where that is. And um, I wanted to tell a fun story where a headless body turns up uh, down in the uh, old port area of the city. And um, I was the, uh, the impetus for that. Actually, I was coming out of Becky's diner on commercial street, which is one of the famous Portland breakfast haunts and uh, right down on the waterfront. And as I was walking the three blocks to my car, which was the closest parking spot I could get, which is typical, I'm looking at this old abandoned lumber yard that had, when I started with the department back in 85, was in full swing. And uh, it's all fenced in and, you know, the buildings that are outside are sort of dark and gloomy. And I'm like, what a great place to hide a body. And so, and that's how it starts. That's always how it starts. Um, I, I, I creepy, you know, I drive around Portland looking for places to leave a body and um, it is how it starts, right? Is it, I mean, I don't know what that's something wrong with me, but anyway, um, and that's what it came from. That really was where that story started. And, uh, and it, as usual, they sort of take on a life of their own. I, I, it's a great place to start a body, find a body. I've got a couple of stories. I got a couple of locations. It's like, that would be a great place to find a body. <laughs> God help anybody if we ever became serial killers, because that's what we do, you know. I know, I know. <laughs> so, so, so I, oh, wait, okay, go ahead. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm ruining your flow, Liz, so I apologize. But no, it's uh, okay, I don't have a flow. There's no uh, flow. <laughs> so, so only mystery writers would understand when you said you wanted to write a fun story about a headless body. <laughs> <laughs> no, that is also true. And, right, yeah. Uh, so, so is, is that where you come up with your, your ideas? You, you look, it's kind of location. You look around and you say, hey, that's a great place to find a body or drop a body. Um, sometimes it is, you know, really the, whatever the idea is just sort of creeps into your head. And sometimes uh, a location ends up being perfect for whatever that idea is. Um, for me, I wanted to tell, I love telling a story where um, it's the complexity is added to because 
it's not the cut and dry, you know, the, the person wearing the black hat doing the evil deed. It's, it's more fun sometimes to have somebody act out of frustration, um, act out of some sense of, of right or wrong that's, that's warped from our perspective. But uh, sometimes they feel like they're doing the right thing and it ends up snowballing. I, to me, that's just, it's a more fun tale to tell. Um, it, and it's, it, I think it's easier to get the reader sometimes to sympathize with the antagonist if you have that complex issue. So for me, that all just sort of came together. I was looking for another story to tell that way. And, I, you know, I, the, the word entitlement was floating around in my head. And, and then there's a gloomy lumberyard just waiting for me. So <laughs> it went from there. Well, which begs another question. Do you think the antagonist needs to be a sympathetic character? Um, I don't I'm, I think to a point they need to be because it's uh, one of the things that, that um, television, I think, has done a much better job uh, at as of late, especially the, the streaming stuff. Um, it seemed like for a while we were watching the same old show over and over again. And then we started seeing new channels pop up, even on regular cable. And the programming setting suddenly got a lot better. And one of the things I noticed, and and uh, and and admittedly, it is fun. We were getting the antihero uh, huge doses of it. Uh, shows like The Soprano, um, The Sopranos. I'm sorry, uh, Dexter, uh, The Shield. You know, all of a sudden, you're getting these despicable characters, but because but the writing help. is so good, and because yeah. their their lives have so many connections to our own you find yourself sympathizing with them and, and having to remind yourself that they're actually bad, bad guys. Mm -hmm. And um, to me, I just find that uh, fascinating, you know, and it's more fun, I think, to get into the story from two different perspectives. Mm -hmm. hmm. So I'm going to ask you something that I get asked all the time as a series author. Do you have to start at the beginning and read the books in order? If a reader walked up and said, I've never read your books, do I have to read them in order? I, I write them. I write them in such a way that you don't um, intentionally, because I'm really bad at uh, discovering a series author. Uh, usually, I'll pick up book four or five of a series and read it and go, "My God, I, oh, I've never seen this writer before. They're so good." <laughs> and then I do a little research and realize that I'm late to the party, uh, and then I have to go back and read what amounts to prequels. Um, so I, I'm a big fan of trying to write the book so that it will stand on its own merit, um, but I also have written this series so that I think the character arcs really are, are important, especially for the main characters. Um, John develops quite a bit as the series goes on. His relationship with Diane and Diane herself develops quite a bit as the series goes on. Um, I even get into the nuances of, in addition to them having the struggle of, of that working relationship and personal relationship, which, which has a lot of things really admittedly going against it. Um, we also have the uh, desire on Diane's part to get promoted, to go higher up in the, in the police department and to, in, in fact, uh, have the same job that John has, which, mm -hmm. of course, will present all kinds of problems because mm -hmm. whether John likes it or not, John has a lot of old school um, in him because of being raised that way. And he's aware of it uh, and he's, he tries to fight it. But Internally, sometimes his struggle is is very real. So those are, I think, those are fun dynamics to watch play out on the page. Yep. So, um, writing a series, what's the 
What's the, what do you like best and what's the most challenging? Um, I, I think I love the most returning to the characters. Um, that's why I love reading other authors' series. Um, that's why I love watching, uh, you know, like a great example would be uh, the Walt Longmire series on television. Um, that was the, a great uh, the, series. The brilliant job that Brenda Blethyn does with uh, Anne Cleve's character, Vera, is, uh, is cool. And for me, it's, it's like going back and visiting an old friend when you find a character that you can identify with. And so I love sitting down and writing these characters every day. Um, they get into your, they get into your brain, they get into your blood, and I think they get into your heart, um, which, which is kind of cool if you're the writer, because uh, we're, I mean, as readers first, we're also writing for ourselves, which I think is kind of cool. Mm -hmm. So that's probably the best part is getting to spend time and visit with with your favorite characters, um, and then I think the other, the part that I find the hardest, and I, and I don't know how this goes on for. You know, some of these writers have done over 20 books in the same series. See Lee Child or, you know, somebody along those lines. I don't know how you do that. Um, at some point, I think accidentally you're going to end up writing the same book uh, mm -hmm. that you've written before. Um, and for me, when I was trying to describe that to somebody, I said, it feels like the corridor is narrowing the further I walk down. And it's because I find myself writing scenes that, that have echoes of scenes I've written already. Or maybe the plot line has echoes of something I've done already. So, you know, those things we revert back to that we love as writers, I think. The things mm -hmm. that, that just sort of stick in our heads. And you really have to try hard to find another way to tell a story without duplicating those things. Mm -hmm. um, because you don't want to bore the reader, you know. Can, can well, I ask uh, one, interrupt yet again. Um, <laughs> feel free jump we're in allowed, like we're I said. allowed to ask questions um yes there's no flow we we don't know each other well but i hate you already because earlier you were talking about <laughs> the series and you said you had it's it sounded like you had plotted out your all three books before you even finished book one or maybe even started book one are, um, are you one of those people yeah <laughs> Uh, type A, type A is the one you're looking for. Um, not entirely. I, when I when I realized that there was a possibility that that what I had written would become a series, um, I really didn't want the characters to be static. I mean, that was really kind of my own rule. Um, and again, I hate to, I don't want to pick on anybody, but it's just my personal feeling. I think if if you were to ask Lee Child, he'd probably tell you that that Jack Reacher is not a static character. That there are things about him that change. But I think by and large, he's that he's that entity that shows up with the same tools at every town and, and then runs into the same problems because he is who he is and because corruption is everywhere. Um, and he's always got to pick a fight. He can't walk away from it. So I think to a point, he always feels static to me. And I didn't want that. I wanted somebody who felt more like what we deal with on a daily basis. You know, we're not the same people we were five years ago. Um, and so I thought that would be more, a more fun story where the, the hero or the heroine of the story have things that, where they move ahead and succeed. And then they have those natural setbacks that life tends to offer all of us. And so like, a, like concerning John's alcoholism, I knew I wanted him to be a mess when you first met him, not professionally, but personally, he, he was a mess because he was really struggling with what was next and what his meaning was outside of the job. And then by the second book, I wanted him to put that genie in the bottle 
and trying to convince himself, although the reader knows different, that he could control that and it was not an issue. And then by the third bottle, I wanted a third bottle. Listen, the third bottle. <laughs> by the third, that was a Freudian slip there. Um, by the third book, I wanted him to be shoved off the ledge, uh, kicking and screaming. And then there were what only does that two. mean, shoved off oh, the yeah, ledge? You, what you do you mean by him. that? So the, the story really, the third book, I think, of the four is such an emotional story. And I did that on purpose. I wanted to, I set the reader up, first of all. So I got a lot of hate mail um, about somebody that dies in that book that had become beloved, I think, by the readers. And I did that on purpose. Um, if you just introduce another red shirt, uh, you know, see Star Trek from the 60s, everyone knows that person's going to die as soon as they beam down to the planet. But if you take somebody that you've nurtured to the first couple of books and then something really bad befalls them in the third novel, um, it gets the point across. You get the emotional response from the reader that you wanted um, so that I could put that same feeling that Byron was feeling in the reader's heart uh, and then tear it out, basically. But I, but I needed a reasonable and an, and an honest way to tell a story that would, that would make Byron have to ask for help because it would shove him off the, the edge and he would start drinking again, uh, totally losing control because of the emotions he was feeling. So did he um, lose control? Oh, uh, yeah. And, okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, 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 you, have to, you have to read the <laughs> third book. But yeah, I mean, I, I, but I wanted that to happen. I mean, I could yeah. see that as a. Because then, then you, you know, you're rooting for him. You realize, you know, okay, he's doing this, he's doing that, he's making it to the second book. But you know, he's just hanging on, and um, you get hints of the kinds of things that might still befall him. And then to tell the story honestly, you know, I've never met anybody that could do that and 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 keep it down without help. Mm-hmm. Uh, eventually, you end up realizing that you have two two courses open to you. One is just total self-destruction, and the other one is to reach out and ask for somebody to help you uh, and be brave enough to yeah. take it. So yeah. that was kind yeah. of my goal. I, yeah, for those for those of you who just started reading, I, I the, I've not read all of Bruce's books, but I read the third one just in preparation for this interview. Um, and here's what my reaction was. I immediately sent Bruce an email that said, damn you, Bruce Coffin, you made me cry. Oh. <laughs> I love those emails. <laughs> that that should tell you something about the third book. Um, and uh, yes, you you shoved him quite effectively because it's a hard. It's, I'm a hard to cry. I that's a I hard thing to you. do. I got through. It I did. got a Vietnam vet. I got a Vietnam vet, a Marine, uh, admit the same thing to me, and it was killing him to admit it. Um, yeah. But, no, but, I, but I, that's, I was that's I was my goal. shocked. I was shocked. And and then I cried, um, and I hate you. I hate but, you. But isn't that always <laughs> isn't that always our goal though? Really, to get. I mean, you're we're making up fictional Absolutely. characters, and it's great if you can get an emotional response from the reader, whether it's good or bad or, or whatever. I, I just think that's what what it's all about. You know why right, we all which, cried at the end of Old Yeller, right? I mean, well, yeah, yeah, which well, kind of plays in. Oh, I'm sorry. To, Go ahead, go ahead, Carrie. No, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, I love these kind of conversations because I pick up all kinds of little nuggets, little sparks that go off in my brain to utilize as I'm writing my third book right now. So it's just good to, to listen to another author extrapolate why and what he does and how. So thank you. Well, I was very impressed with um, the book four. I've read you know the first six chapters, I guess it was. And was hooked after chapter one. Um, 
well, what impresses me is how you develop your characters. And I've, I've not met these characters before, but um, so there's a lot there, like in book three that I didn't know happened. But what one thing that sort of intrigued me was the different ways the officers reacted to that gruesome crime scene. And, hmm. you know, there was one, it was that he was his, it was his boss, or he's the head of the crime unit. Right. He was just he, he just couldn't look. He, he was right. very, very upset by what he saw. And um, Byron just takes it in stride. He's just thinking right. about the next step, gathering right. the evidence and every I mean, he is all business. Right. Um, and, you know, I've, I've seen some um, deputy sheriffs react in a surprising way as well, but they just, the, the, the scene was just so bad that, that it made them ill actually. Mm -hmm. um, and I wondered, you know, how um, you, you know, you worked for 27 years in the Portland Police Department as a, and you were a detective sergeant how did you deal with that kind of a situation? And do you ever develop an immunity? It doesn't look like the Royer has. Right. Um, you know, the honest answer is no. Uh, I think we all think we do. Um, if you do something enough, you get used to it. Um, it just becomes part of the job. You sort of compartmentalize it. You tell yourself that nothing that you're doing is is beyond clinical, um, that these are these are just, you know, customers, if you will, uh, the people you deal with are customers and your business is what it is. It's life and death, I guess. And so you, as long as they're not someone, you know, you're really good at compartmentalizing that and keeping the feelings at bay and not allowing them to creep in and control how you, how you respond. Um, and I think that's what a good detective has to do. If you start operating on, uh, your decision-making based on emotions, that's where trouble starts. Um, so you really almost have to stay uh, that Vulcan-like detachment to do the job mm -hmm. properly. Right. The problem is the only people that are being fooled by that, I think, is everybody else. Um, you don't realize that it's still having an effect on you. Um, one day you finally realize if you're telling a story to a normal person, this is what always happened with parties. <laughs> My wife had to be very careful where she dragged me to. Um, inevitably, people would get me talking and, you know, after a couple of drinks, suddenly I'm telling them a story that my coworkers would have had no problem with. But you can see the look on the other people's faces change when they're in shock or horror at what I'm telling them. And oh. you realize it is having an effect on you. And the fact that you can do that and not be you know, emotionally moved by it is that's problematic. You know, mm. you're doing things that people would never think about doing. Is that um, one of the reasons John Byron drinks? It really is. Um, he, John has a lot of problems. One of them is that he has tried um, and failed to run away from his father's influence. Um, I um, wanted to build that into my character as well, because we've all, we've all learned this lesson. At some point, you remember being, how many of you can remember being young and saying, oh my God, if, if I ever say the stuff my mother just said, you know, yeah. shoot me, like seriously. <laughs> yeah. And then oh, yeah. 20 years later, you find yourself saying it with passion. Like you believe it <laughs> yep. now. You're like, oh my God, what yep. happened to me? Um, we, we do a really bad job of running away from that influence. And I thought, 
John didn't want to become an alcoholic because that's what his father was. John wanted to be a good husband because his father wasn't. Mm -hmm. And then John said, you know what? I'm never going to be a police officer either. And so strike three. Um, the, the faster you run from your upbringing, I think the more likely you ought to be to follow in footsteps, you know, so. Interesting. Very interesting. So since we're, since we're, we're kind of there, we're there. Uh, so I'm just going to continue with this theme. So 27 years as a police officer. Mm -hmm. So inevitably, how much of you is in John Byron? How much of your personality? Only the good things. That's what I tell everybody. None, none of his foibles are mine. Um, you know, I, I think there's a, I think obviously as writers, if you're trying to do any of your characters justice, you're putting pieces of yourself into those characters. It doesn't matter whether they're the primary, uh, secondary, or even antagonists. You, to a point, you have to, to make them real, they have to have parts of you in them. Um, I really struggled on my first go around with John, the, the two and a half year drawer novel that uh, everybody has had to do at least one of. Um, I, my big problem writing John at that point was it wasn't hard to write John from an accurate perspective as far as what a detective would be like. But I wanted to throw a little superhero in there and all that other stuff, uh, you know, what, things that I'd seen, things that I'd read. I thought, oh yeah, okay, well, I'll make him whatever. And Kate Flora, who was my uh, mentor when I first started writing, uh, said to me at one point, she said, you know, I noticed that you're not putting any uh, of those frailty things into John. You know, you're having a hard time showing weakness with John. And I wonder if it's because you're seeing too much of yourself in that character. And, uh, and I said, like I always did, damn you, Kate, she figured it out. Um, <laughs> and, and so what she did was she, she said, look, I gave you permission to write him as a real person and to show his vulnerability because he's not you. He's John Byron. He's the person you've created. And it was like a bulb went off in my head. Uh, it sounds so simple, but for the first time, I felt like, geez, I can write him honestly, and I'm not, I'm not betraying myself. I'm not, you know, letting anybody have a look behind the curtain. Uh, and really, nothing had changed other than it just was a different way to be, for me to think about it. So, you know, the scene you talked about in the third book that got you, at, the, at least one of the scenes that got you, um, was just as hard for me to write as it was for you to read. So oh, I think no I, I learned that lesson uh, from Kate very well. So I oh, got it. And so also, and now I'm going to add, I'm a little afraid of this next question. Um, as when you read other police procedurals mm -hmm. as a former law enforcement officer, what, what is the thing you, they get most wrong, get wrong most often. And I'm afraid, I'm afraid of this answer. Uh, well, I mean, uh, most of them do a pretty good job. I think the one, if there was one thing that I could say, it would probably be that um, you can tell when you, you can tell when you read a book, if somebody has the, the emotional familiarity with crime scenes, with death notifications, with um, those aspects of the job, because even though we were doing our best to hide those feelings or tamp them down, they were still there. Uh, if, if my, if my real life detective work had a, had that internal monologue track, like they have in Dexter, you would hear all the things that I was thinking that I, I wouldn't be saying, and I wouldn't be showing, but doesn't mean I wasn't thinking them. Um, and so to me, I, to me, that's the most glaring thing. I mean, I can, I can, I talk to a lot of authors. I mean, you, you included, I've talked to about different things that I've seen in the books that I, that I like, or things that might need to be tweaked. 
but those are really just nuts and bolts. Um, and you do have to take a few liberties. You're only allowed, you know, so many, unless you're Stephen King, you don't get allowed to write a thousand page <laughs> book. So the rest of us have mere mortals have to do it in 350 to 400. And, um, uh, so you, you do have to take a few liberties with procedure and that kind of thing. But I think it's really just emotional. Um, you some somewhere there's a fine line between what would be you know outrageous or repulsive to your average person who's never seen this stuff, which would really be indicative of, say, a rookie uh, within the police department who hadn't had the experiences yet versus the veteran officer. And if you could picture what your daily routine was like and you know for any of you in the workforce or still in the workforce um what your day-to-day -day mundane job is like that's what police detectives break that down into at least the appearance of that but then like at night you might start thinking about it and you might making comparisons to the from the victim to one of your children or to your spouse um, and it becomes a whole different animal once you start letting it creep in um, so I think that's one of the things, the emotional quotient, sometimes it's, it's obvious that the writer hasn't experienced what they're writing about. It, there were, uh, on, on that topic, there were two things I really loved about your first book, which I'm in the middle of. Um, there's a fluidity to the description of police procedure, uh, just an ease to it that shows how familiar you are with it. And also to your point about the office, um, I think anybody could relate to it who's worked at all because uh, John Byron gets along with some people, thinks other people are complete jerks, and then has to decide, do you tell them they're a jerk or not? And Right. You know, <laughs> right. We, we, yeah, all, I, we all know that. Right. Um, I mean, the job is, it's funny, there are things that I get emails from uh, police officers around the globe. Uh, people have read this in Australia, and they're like, Man, it's exactly the same. It's like you could have written a scene that I was in. Um, I think human nature is what it is, and I think there's there's no there's very little difference between a boardroom, uh, the sales floor, uh, and the police force. Um, they're inhabited by the same kind of people who are driven by the same whatever it is to succeed or to not succeed or to do a good job. Uh, and we all know those people. Um, you could put different names on the characters that I have written, and you probably would recognize them. Uh, so, you, you know, and I wanted to make that as realistic as possible. Uh, Marty LaRoya really is a amalgamation of three different lieutenants um, whose I worked for, but my wife likes to say who's I made life I made life miserable for those three people uh, when I was a detective sergeant. I don't know where she gets that from, but. Um, but yeah, they, and they really are. And, and I, my relationship with all of them was like that. I, some of them I came on before, some we came on together. Um, but when I was the detective sergeant, I had a different goal um, than they had. They had the, you know, they had to worry about overtime. They had to worry about manpower. They had to worry about whether or not the employees were suffering exhaustion or keeping the chief happy or, you know, the city hall happy, all that kind of stuff. As a detective sergeant, all I cared about was solving the case, um, building a case that would stand up in court, not, not just making an arrest. An arrest is very little in the process. Uh, there's an attorney sitting here looking at me. She could tell you. Um, <laughs> the, the arrest means very little. I mean, that just means there's probable cause to move forward. But we wanted a case that was going to stand up. So the last thing any of us cared about was the arrest. And a lot of times those are the places where you start to butt heads because 
you know, Mighty Royer wants to keep the chief happy and the chief wants to be able to tell the community we're making progress. We've made an arrest. You can all sleep tonight. Um, but that's not what the job is from the detective's viewpoint. So it's a constant fight in that regard. Right. Yeah, I was impressed with the way you dealt with so many details that am I coming across? You are right now. Yeah, just put your mouth directional to the mic. Right. Okay. Well, I was just impressed with a lot of the details, and I, I, you know, I'm I did a lot of medical work when I was practicing law, used to terms and all kinds of definitions and stuff, but I had to look up lividity. <laughs> well, that's a good Lividity. Um, and then I was surprised when the funeral home came and picked up the body because mm -hmm. I thought it would be the medical examiner's ambulance van or whatever. I thought I was, is that jurisdictional? Uh, sort of different jurisdictions handle that kind of thing differently? It's more, it's more time of day uh, sometimes than ah. anything. Uh, caseload. Um, Maine is such a big area as well. Um, you know, we had a we had a real good working familiarity with the medical examiner's office because we dealt with so many bodies. You know, Brian Theme likes to poke fun and say, "Well, how many murders could you possibly have had?" You know, it's not Oakland, California; it's Portland, Maine. Yeah. And I and I tell them, well, the difference is we investigated all of ours. So, um, <laughs> but you know. But the reality is we had, you know, every suicide, every unattended death, every murder. Um, we worked all of those cases, uh, aggravated assaults, which sometimes the only difference between the murder and not was that Matthew got them to the hospital quickly. Um, so we worked all of those cases and you get real used to, uh, to death investigations and to dealing with bodies, to dealing with the ME's office. So they, they had a, a mutual respect for what we were able to do. And sometimes a phone call to the ME who couldn't get to the scene would be enough to allay their concerns and um, they would tell us what they wanted. And sometimes it might only be a viewing. I mean, it might be that they transported the, uh, the body to the hospital and it was placed inside the morgue. And then the medical examiner would follow up uh, either later that day or the next day uh, and then draw blood and do all the other things that, that you would do in those cases for the minimum. And that would be because, you know, we hadn't found evidence of foul play or evidence would suggest that it was this as opposed to this. Um, so it really depended. Sometimes we would have that transport um, that would take them right up to Augusta and place them in the ME's office for uh, autopsy that might occur one, two, three days in the future. Um, sometimes the I've been in a I was actually in a hotel room watching a medical examiner start an autopsy. I mean, not the whole thing, obviously, uh, but parts of the autopsy that you normally would have done at the hospital or at the, at the lab um, be for expediency so that we wouldn't lose any evidence. Um, it was pretty obvious what we had. It was the locked room mystery and uh, we had solved it. And so the ME just climbed right up on the bed and did their, did their job. Matter of fact, the uniformed officer came in while this was happening. Oh, wow. Just took one look at what was going on and turned around and said, I'll be outside if you guys need me. Turn right around and walked out of the room. So, kidding. Oh um, my gosh. <laughs> Myron's right there in the middle of the right. office. <laughs> think about that the next time you run a hotel room. Oh, God. <laughs> no, I don't want to think about that. <laughs> Lord. Yeah. So, so, we'll talk about, you know, writing journeys. Um, I swear I remember either talking to you or an interview where you had said, you'd all you this idea of writing 
had always been in the back of your mind. Um, was it always mystery? Did you ever think of writing something other than mystery? Yeah, and really why did you choose mystery? Mystery wasn't, uh, would not have been my first uh, thing. I, what fascinated me about writing and what really pushed me over the edge was reading Salem's Lot when I was, whatever I was, 11, 12 years old. Um, okay. That dish, I mean, I love storytelling. I love being read to. I love reading. Um, my teachers read to me. My parents read to me. I mean, I, that was just the age we grew up in. There were only two channels that would come in uh, and tinfoil was needed for the third one. Uh, so, you, I mean, you really had limited options. So you had to entertain yourself with books or, or that kind of thing. But I, in spite of, uh, despite how heavily read I was, uh, it wasn't until I picked up Salem's Lot that, that everything changed. And I said, Jesus, this is, this is so far beyond anything I could have comprehended. You know, I'm reading what is considered an adult fiction novel. And it's about vampires, you know, the most uh, improbable storyline. You know, it's really just a retelling of Dracula. Uh, only it was set modern day where I lived. And he did such a great job of setting the place, uh, getting the details right and describing people that I met on a daily basis that I was like, holy crap, it, this seems so real. Like this could really happen. And it changed what storytelling was for me. And I knew at that point. Uh, I love to write already uh, that I wanted to take that to a different level. And, and to, that would be my dream job would be a, a novelist. So I, I had that dream starting then. Um, I wrote short stories all through school. Um, I, I actually received some monetary benefit for some of those um, from my less than prolific classmates uh, who attached my name to those and turned them in. <laughs> um, which is the statute of limitations has run out. So now I can admit that yeah. <laughs> someday, someday there's going to be an anthology out there that I find in a store. And it's going to be all my old stories with somebody else's name. <laughs> on it. I'm going to, that'll be my punishment. Um, but yeah. And, and my, uh, my writing uh, got me scholarships. Uh, it took me to college and then uh, the derailing happened with my first advanced creative writing class. Uh, my professor was not a nurturing individual. Uh, he was less than enthusiastic about my writing ability. And uh, that really turned everything on its head for me. So That's I went for door number two, oh. having no idea that it was going to lead me back uh, to the original path. So okay. it, it was fortuitous the way it turned out, but uh, oh, right. I don't, Think I don't about, believe that's what he was hoping for. How could you, how could you write with such clarity and such deep emotion and, and without the experience that you've had as a cop. I couldn't, I couldn't. I, mean, I wish oh I'd known gosh. that I was training though. That would have been nice if I'd yeah. known that. Yeah, I mean, that's like, I've been through a lot of really hard things relationally and emotionally. And, and instead of bemoaning those stumbling blocks, it's like, they're just all being used for fodder to create right. my characters. And I can work out those situations that were so tragic and heartbending it's, it's cathartic in order to give it a different ending oh, or, sure. to, or to punish the perpetrator. <laughs> well, and I think, don't you think all of us have suffered, you know, that adversity we've, we've come out through, you know, whatever life has thrown at us and we've obviously come through it or we wouldn't be sitting here. Mm -hmm. um, and I think those are great things to, to get into a book if you can, or, or maybe they are the storyline, depending on what you're writing. Um, and the reason I think that's important is it's just one more way for the reader to identify with your characters. Um, everybody goes through stuff. 
But if you can write into your characters what you something you have honestly gone through that was was tough, um, I think that really speaks volumes, and it, it's it's an easy way to identify with with the readers. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So so That's when that moment happen. happened, oh sorry sorry Cindy, did you say something? No, go right ahead. Um, so when that moment happened and you realized that you were going to do the writing, did you pick mystery because you were a cop? Did you, I mean, did you decide to write what you know, or did you, like, what drew you in that, just that path? I, th- I think it picked me. Um, like I say, you know, Salem's Lot really was the thing that what, what changed it for me. So if I had, and I've read every Stephen King book, um, although I say that he's written three since we've been sitting here, so I'm probably behind <laughs> by now. But, um, but I've read them all. So I think horror would have probably been, been an easier thing for me to gravitate to when I was younger. Um, I think the reason that I started writing, I had, there were a bunch of reasons I, I can look back on. One of them was my wife buying me an iPad. Um, you know, the, the knuckle dragging typewriter, former user, uh, into the 21st century. <laughs> and, um, and I, and I found that really cool app on it. that was just WordPad, and, uh, started sitting there doodling. And next thing I know, I'm writing sentences and paragraphs and there's stuff coming out. Uh, it was that simple. And I think because of the experiences I'd had over three decades, I think it was a time to unload that stuff. And I think that's that's where the fascination began with writing uh, crime, you know, novels. I, you know, I, like everybody, I've read so many different types of things. You know, I read the Agatha Christie stuff growing up, and um, I, you know, I've been enthralled with all the different genres of fiction. So, but I think police work was the thing that I went to. I didn't even know there was such a thing called police procedural. I had no idea. I thought mystery was mystery. You know, police procedural sounded like a class I had to sign up for. Uh, you know, one on one. Uh, that would bore the hell out of me. Um, but yeah, that, that's just what it was. I didn't even know there was a thing until somebody told me that's what I was writing. Well, you brighten up the, the um, text with these incredible descriptions of your characters. I think my, my favorite, well, I'm certainly interested in this coroner. He's, he is just, you, you've just so vividly described him, I could see him. Thank, thank you. Yeah. Ellis is fun to write. Dr. Ellis yeah. is definitely a treat. Yeah. He's he's sort of a he's sort of a, a like a dual composite I think for a couple of the Emmys that that we worked with. Uh, I tell people my my favorite line, and I think I worked it into the fourth book, and this actually did happen. Um, you spend a lot of time with with the medical examiners, and um, they're they're great. They have the same twisted dark humor I think that we all use, but they do it in a different way. And I had always wanted to ask that question. And I, like I say, I think I did use it in the fourth book where Byron says to Dr. Ellis, he, he can tell something's troubling John and he goes, what's going on? What's, you know, what's going on, my boy? And John says, um, you know, something that's always bothered me. He said, how can you do this all day? What you do, which is basically disassembling human bodies and go home and take any physical pleasure in your spouse. And Ellis <laughs> pauses and looks at him and says, my boy, there's work and there's pleasure. And I try not to get them confused. And, and I, I was just as uncomfortable with an answer as John was. So, but that's a, that's a pretty real uh, character of, of an, a medical examiner, the way they think and uh, the humor that they have to use to, to get the right. job done. So, how, how many of your former colleagues have gotten in touch with you to uh, 
insist that they recognize themselves in your books? <laughs> well, uh, <laughs> a lot of them have said they recognize somebody else. Um, oh. <laughs> yeah, and and any of the people I portray badly, I've never had anybody come and say, hey, was that jerk in your book, me? No one's ever done that. So it doesn't mean they didn't recognize it, but um, the only one that I actually had come up that assumed I was writing about him and I and I really laughed because I had no idea. If if I knew this, it was subconsciously. I don't remember this happening, but um, I was going to a book signing uh, at one of the Portland independent bookstores and I was running late. So I'm kind of charging across the parking lot in the dark. And uh, one of my old uh, evidence technicians uh, tra intercepts me as I'm going to the door. And he had just finished reading um, the second novel. I think was it the second. I think it was the second novel with the new police officer passes out when they go to the autopsy. And um, yeah. the the character that the uniform officer had actually named uh, a name that was very close to this to this evidence technician's name, a like a variant of it. And uh, apparently he passed out at the very first autopsy he had attended and I wasn't aware of it. So he assumed I was writing about him. I said, geez, no, I didn't even know, but thank you for telling me because I'll be sure to share that with all my uh, fans now. That'll be fun. So, but I, yeah, I had no idea that happened. Uh, not, uh, at least not consciously. So funny. Hmm. So when we were at Malice this past spring, um, it was you and me and Josh Pactor and JC Kenny in the bar. And we talked about a football themed cozy and we had we had this this was you know why hasn't anybody ever written this um you've written all police you know all grittier stuff would you ever go outside that arena into something that is really different because cozy is completely different from anything right you would the um, pirate books yeah i don't i don't think i would ever want to pigeonhole myself into one little area i've, I've actually um, toyed around with and started writing something which i think might be deemed a little more cozy uh, in a northern Maine setting. Um, that hasn't been finished, and I don't know that I ever will finish it. But it's something to—it's sort of fun to write. <laughs> like I say, I'm—I'm I'm fascinated by the the Vera character. I think uh, Brenda Blethyn just totally nails her. I mean, she's just to me, she's the she's the Irish modern day equivalent of uh, Columbo. You know, I mean, she's just she's perfect. She's. She's a curmudgeon. She likes things the way she likes them, and she doesn't take no for an answer. And I just think her dogged pursuit of justice is just a is a blast, you know. Plus, she's she's quirky as all get out. So I just think that's fun. But yeah, there's definitely something like that in me. I think I could see myself doing more of a Vera type character than I could, uh, uh, you know, the murder she wrote thing was just a little too. My mine wouldn't be as nice. My my uh, cozy wouldn't be as nice as <laughs> main character probably. So. But yeah, no, and and you know, it's funny uh, you mentioned that. I, I just penned a deal and I, I can't give you the details. That would be unfair uh, because we haven't signed the, the final contract with the publisher yet, but I just signed co-writing contracts uh, with another author uh, and we will be doing a brand new series that will have some mystery, okay, cool. we'll have some action adventure, some historical stuff and a lot of bad guys chasing my heroes down, our heroes down. So I think that'll be fun too. I think that'll be different for readers for sure. Oh, excellent! Is, You'll, sounds great. Go ahead. Is Sarah. your co-writer a uh, a retired cop? Is no. she in the same? Okay. No, oh. no. Well, that's good, isn't it? No, she uh, she and I come from different worlds, but uh, we have written similar type things. So this, I think, this will definitely be a, a departure for both of us. And I think it'll be fun. 
we've done a few sample chapters already uh, and um, she loved what she wrote and I, what I, what I wrote and I love writing it. Um, I tell people that she's doing a lot of, she's doing most of the, uh, I keep saying, I have to say she, because I can't tell you who it is, but um, she's doing most <laughs> of the, the synopsizing and plotting of this book. Uh, so I, I liken this to she's writing the recipe and I'm going to go in the kitchen and make a mess. And we'll see if it works out and anybody will want it. You know, that's anyone will want to ingest what we've made. So, but I think it's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah. I think collaboration would be fun. Yeah. 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 No, this is, and two heads, you know, if there's anything that that COVID has taught me is Jesus, concentration is hard to hang on to when you're good. Good writing comes from adversity, but not when you're in the middle of it. Usually Mm -hmm. after you're past it, I found. So yeah. Uh, it's nice to have that second head kind of dealing with all, some of the plot line things and stuff. Right. Oh, yeah. Invite us to your first launch. What's that? Oh, Invite yeah, right? No. First launch. Absolutely, yeah. No, that'll, mm-hmm. we got to do that. That'll be fun. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we can't, I can't wait to hear about that. So we're, so we're, we're coming into our last 10 minutes. So let's switch gears just a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, when you talked about novels, You've done a lot of short stories. You know, you, your short stories are regularly published, um, and it probably takes a lot less time to write a short story. But what what else about writing a short story is so much different than a novel, and why do you like it so much? I think one of the things I enjoy about writing a short story much more than the novel is we've all had those, you know, holy crap moments where you this idea just hits you like a bullet. And you think, oh my God, I got to get this down on paper before it's gone. Like you can see the entire thing, uh, almost the entire novel, really. You have the whole picture and, and you can't write fast enough to get it down. With a short story, I can do that. I can literally sit down and in four hours have the bulk of the story on paper. Um, and I know that there's some things I might need to tweak or, or figure out or whatever, but I've got it there. And it's not like I've just written two paragraphs and maybe one day this will be a novel. I've actually written down the, the whole storyline. And for me, that's a lot of fun because then you can take your time and, and carve it into something that's, you know, hopefully that works, you know, beautiful or ugly or whatever it is you're going for uh, and or thought provoking. And but you can do it fairly quickly. Um, they don't all come that way, unfortunately. Um, but they many of them, have, many of them have the, the first the first thing I ever had published was that short story called Foolproof that was in Best American Mystery Stories. And um, that literally came to me. I woke up, I had that Paul McCartney yesterday moment where the song's playing in my head and I got up and I started writing. And in two days I'd written the the whole story. Uh, It took me another year to to get it down so that it wasn't, you know, a lot of dumb stuff that didn't, I took it basically from a 6,000 word short story down to 3,600. And I learned so much about editing, doing that on my own because it was basically exactly the same story. Mm-hmm. But it was told in such a way that, you know, if there was nothing extra needed in that, that the whole story was right there. Um, and sometimes that's how it happens. Sometimes um, there's a story right now residing with uh, Lee Lachlan uh, that will be part of the next Writers Police Academy anthology when that when that finally gets done. And it's called uh, it took me, I think, five or six years to finally get the ending to this story. Right. And it's appropriately named Writer's Block. Um <laughs> And believe it or not, remember I mentioned the college writing professor I had that was 
less than helpful with my writing career. And um, something really wicked befalls an old creative writing professor in the future in this story. So I don't know where I, well, I got the idea for that from. But, so uh, cathartic. Those it, are the it really was, that I love. It really was. You yeah. see why the ending had to get, I had to get that right. It was very yes. important to me. So Of course. Yeah, I thought my, I like to write short stories too. And I submitted something to um, Sisters in Crime. They have an anthology, North Carolina. And so I got accepted and I was like, yay. And I, it came together just like you said, like a bullet. Just it was just perfect in the theme of it and everything. And then she said, Oh, I love this story. I just we have to have it's kind of funny. It's dark, but it's also funny. And she said, We need that, but I want you to rewrite the whole thing in first person. <laughs> <laughs> so I did it, but I'm like, you know, it had nothing to do with the story to be in first person. She but but you do Can what you, you imagine. Have to do. Had that have been a novel, how bad no. that would have been? Well, I that, wouldn't have right? done it. No, I would right, clarify. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, that would not happen. But no, it's true. Anyway, that was amazing. I think it was around ten thousand words, and so I had to go back through the whole thing. But it's, it's humility. I, humility. I enjoy the short story. It's yeah, I think they're fun to write. They're fun to read. Um, they're really. I, I tell people that struggle with the idea of a novel. I say, you don't realize you're only talking about what what it really is is say you know, 30, 3,000 word short stories. That's yeah. what you're writing. Yeah. If you Each picture it every, I know I'm, I'm simplifying yeah. here. Mally hates me even more now, but I know I'm simplifying, <laughs> but, but I mean, really, that's what it is. You know, if, if you looked at every chapter as, as a story unto yep. itself, um, yes. that's, that's all novel writing is. They just all have to be the same flowing story. Didn't but, Steinbeck you know. just uh, sort of hook together a bunch of short stories for his first novel? Who's that now? Steinbeck. Oh, Steinbeck, yeah, probably. I probably did read that somewhere. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. You know. So do you outline or do you just do snapshots? It depends on the book. Okay. Um, this, I think the only book that I've outlined almost entirely, when I say entirely, I'm not one of those guys that sits down and writes, you know, I, I can't do a 30,000 word outline because I wouldn't want to write the book. I'd you're be not, bored you're not Patterson? You're not James no, Patterson? No, um, I, I Or think Jeffrey Deaver. <laughs> right. I know. Yeah. I'm impressed by that. I don't know how yeah. he does it. Um, I, I, I think the only book I've done was the third one was Beyond the Truth. And I, I really wrote maybe a five page outline. And it was, you know, a couple, a couple sentences for every single scene that I could picture that would take it from beginning to end. Mm -hmm. And the problem and I blame Paula because we were negotiating with Harper uh, mm -hmm. and they wanted to know what the second book was about. And I said to Paul, like, I, it's only half written. I have no idea what it's about. <laughs> what do you want me to write? And uh, she made she made me write a, an outline so she could do like the, you know, the back cover copy to tell them. Because she goes, that's all I'm giving them. And if you change it, you change it. It is what it is. But they have to have something. So I, I grumbled and groaned and spent four hours writing this thing for her so she could do it. And we ultimately got the contract. Um, so the next day I returned to the library, planning to spend, you know, six or eight hours working on book number two so that I'd have a head start uh, when this contract got signed. And I woke up with the idea for the third novel. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> I, like, seriously. Gotta get so, gotta get yeah. Yeah. so I totally blame her. So I, I spent eight hours writing the outline for the third book. And it's a book I couldn't even start for a year and a half. Oh. Um, you know, and I mean, I still had to go back. Did you I stay did. true I did. to the outline? Yeah, as, soon, as soon as I turned it, well, I'd added to it since then, because every time I got a new idea, I, I wrote it in and inserted it into the, the outline. By the time I got the 
email from my editor uh, at Harper saying, yeah, we really love the second book because they had that draft, you know, that the final draft before he started, you know, poking around telling me things that he might want to see me fix. But it was at least that they really loved it. And I and uh, then I said, OK, here we go. I'm at the starting gate, open the door. I'm chasing the rabbit. You know, I've been holding on to this thing for a year and a half. And so I was out of the door like a shot. That book, that book almost wrote itself. Oh, that's awesome. You know, so that was yeah. nice. Maybe I should plot more. That would be, maybe that would help. Well, me. I tried doing it this time and I totally strayed. Totally strayed. Did you? Yeah. The theme well, that, stayed think, the same, but other Don't things. you think the problem is you get better ideas the more you think about stuff. You know, you, you, some of your ideas you know are garbage, but you write them down because they'll get you from point A to point B. Mm-hmm. And so I, I wouldn't want to spend a lot of time outlining because I know my mind will change when I get to a scene, you know, that something better will have come up, some different direction I could go in that I hadn't thought of. So. Right. right. Well, or, or you're like me and you write the outline and you think you have to stick to the outline. So you do. Uh, but what you wrote according to the outline is really not that great. So you wind up tossing the outline and rewriting <laughs> the last 60 pages of your book. No, right. I didn't just do that. I did right. not at all. Um, there's no, there's no right way to. I don't think there's any right way to do it. You either, you either are happy with the finished product or you're not. And if you are happy with it, I don't care how you got there. It was worth it. You know. Yeah, worth it. So you may, you may have already answered this. What are you working on now, and how's it going? Is that the collaboration? Is that your next project? No, we we put that on hold. We just did the, a couple uh, sample chapters just to see. And, okay. Uh, um, so that's on hold until we've signed everything. Um, so right now I'm still working on a standalone novel, uh, just straight up thriller, uh, called, uh, the inside woman. And, um, I, I tell people it's, uh, uh, my main character is a blast to write. Her name is Alex Barron and she, I'm channeling my inner Beth Dutton, uh, when, when I write her character, if you've, if you've all seen Yellowstone. Uh, ben yeah. Dutton is my favorite character in the thing because every every scene she's in, I know something horrible is going to happen. She's just <laughs> she's the catalyst for mayhem, and I love that. So my Alex is a little less um, crazy, I think, because uh, Beth has a crazy side to her, but um, she's just as fearless as Alex Dutt, as as uh, Beth Dutton. So I'm having a lot of fun writing that, and and to your earlier point about series writing, which I think what's even more fun for me on this book is that I don't have to color inside the lines. Um, There is no foul line from the John Byron mystery series that I'm trying to stay inside of. Um, This is all new territory for me, so I can do whatever I want. And And um, that's free. Yeah. It's, it's sort of freeing. I mean, there's no expectation. It's really like writing your first book all over again. Your audience doesn't know what you're doing. They have no idea what you're going to give them. And um, they, although they may know your style, uh, it's outside the series. So anything goes. So I'm, I'm enjoying that. Hopefully someday that thing will see the light of day. Yeah, I love Hank Phillippe Ryan said about uh, a standalone. Um, anything can happen. Like there are no rules. Anybody can die. Anybody with a standalone, you're not constrained. Anything can happen. Right. There's, right, like there's no tomorrow because if it's a standalone, there is no tomorrow. That's it. You know, put it all right. on the page. Don't you don't need to save anything for a character arc. It's all there. Right, Mally. What were you? You were saying something, weren't you? And and you don't have to think that you have readers um, peeking over your shoulder and what are they going to think if you do X Y Z because they're like you said, there are no expectations. Right, right. I mean, 
if you write anything different, I think you, you'll always get detractors or naysayers. Uh, C.J.K. Rowling, you know, what are you doing writing something that's not wizardry? Uh, but I, you know, but I think we all have to do that, don't you? I mean, at some point, you you don't want to just sit on the same thing because I think you become bored. I think you don't want to write the same book. Um, some okay. of us have multiple series because we wanted to do something different. Some do it because of publishing needs. Um, but I think as long as you're writing and you enjoy what you're writing, it's, it's all good. So, and there'll be somebody that likes it. You know, I know my mom will like it. So that's a win, no matter what, um, if I can <laughs> just get one other on person, you're, right? you're a great you know? writer. People are, <laughs> thank oh, yeah. you. Absolutely. Thank you. Um, so tomorrow, what's no, no explanation, just author and book title for this one. What's the last great book you read? Ordinary Grace. William Kent Kruger. Actually, uh, that's a lie. That wasn't the last good one I read. That was that was my favorite one probably in the last five years. That was my first favorite one in the last five years. My second one was Karen Dion's Marsh King's Daughter. I'd have to okay. put both of those on, on equal footing. Uh, those are probably both my favorite books. And Marsh King's Daughter, the Marsh King's Daughter is going to come out at a movie next year. I can't wait. I know. I, know. Um, I will be first in line. Bucket of popcorn, gallon of soda. I'm ready to roll. Right there. So those are my two. And if anyone hasn't read those, put them on your list, man. You got to get them in. They're they're both very very well done. I I have read the Marsh King's Daughter. I have not read William King Kruger. That Ordinary Grace is. I mean, because a lot of people have read his Cork O'Connor series. I mean, I, to me, that's people get used to it, like you do the John Byron series. Uh, Ordinary Grace came out of left field, and I I was like. Oh how did he write this book? <laughs> like, seriously, I read that and I'm thinking I had a good handle on what he was writing. And now he, he just did something that I can't imagine ever writing. Uh, to me, it, what it what it had shades of To Kill a Mockingbird, because it was told in the viewpoint of a 12 year old um, historical small town. Uh, dad's, a, uh, I think, a minister um, and all the things that were going on at that time. Uh, but he does such a great job of of still weaving a mystery from that viewpoint, and uh, like I say, there were shades of that to me. That the book sort of had had those resonated, I think, with that kind of story. Uh, it's a different tale altogether, but the way it was told very much reminded me of *To Kill a Mockingbird*. Very cool. And then, so now, perhaps the hardest question that you're going to get us today, yeah, but it's my favorite question. <laughs> What alcoholic beverage pairs best with the John Byron mysteries? Oh, <laughs> probably a Guinness, a nice Guinness on draft. I would have thought scotch. There it is. Well, I, I would have said, I said with that, you. but I want you to finish the book so we can't start okay. scotch early. Maybe, <laughs> okay. maybe I don't the know what chapter. they drink in Maine. Maine <laughs> right. really has its own flavor because I'm down here in the low country and I'm thinking, bourbon right, right. <laughs> an old-fashioned uh, but in maine they have different drinking we do we, we do now, have different, but yeah. but knowing john byron the way i do and i realized actually after i asked this question i'm like okay well byron's like a functional alcoholic i'm not sure yes. we should ask this question oh that's true right. uh, <laughs> but i am but knowing byron the way i would i was expecting you to say either bourbon or scotch so that's hilarious yeah, John, right. John would have gone right for the Jameson, but uh, yeah, I would I would hold off because I want to finish the novel before. You know? <laughs> there you go. Fair enough. Fair enough. 
Well, this has been great. Thank you so much for, yes. for coming on. Thank you guys. Love Thanks, the conversation. Grace. What great information. Um, yes, for anybody who's listening, if you have not read the Byron Mysteries, go out, get them, read them now. Do Tell not your pass friends. Go. You won't Tell your friends. Do not pass go. Do not pass. $200. Right. So, well, thank you all for listening. It's been a pleasure talking to Bruce Robert Coffin, and we will see you all next time. Bye. Thank you, guys. Bye, everybody. Thanks for listening to this episode of Guns, Knives, and Lipstick. Like what you heard? Subscribe to us wherever you're listening and never miss an episode. And before you go, would you do us a favor? Leave us a rating or review, please. Just like with books, ratings and reviews help other listeners find us and spreads the word. Until we meet next month with a new guest, stay safe, stay well, and above all, ladies, don't forget your lipstick.